Welcome back to The Stack. This week we speak with Neil Davis, otherwise known as Lagrev Nokfep. Professor Davis has asked that I do his introduction in Limerick. But I couldn't get a ticket to Ireland, so he'll have to settle for a bit of poetry. There once was a man who taught Hoon School, in lectures both gripping and tuneful, for urbit fanatics with bar pats in their attics, to drink their Kool-Aid by the spoonful. Our topics this week are the advantages of urbit over traditional development paradigms, Hoon School and how to get some, what species of lunatic writes Hoon, and pedagogy and the performance of teaching. But first, back to the topic of the limerick. You'll wish to know where they came from, and I confess to you, I can't say more than jolly old England of the 18th century. It's a form usually in anapestic trimeter with the rhyme scheme A-A-B-B-A. Many of you have probably read the limericks of Edward Gorey. To his club-footed child, said Lord Stipple, as he poured his postprandial tipple, your mother's behavior gave pain to our savior, and that's why he made you a cripple. It's rather a humble-seeming form of low origin, but this belies the high IQ autist word celery that's found in it, as in this equation that was expressed by mathematician Lee Mercer, a dozen, a gross, and a score, plus three times the square root of four, divided by seven, plus five times eleven, is nine squared, and not a bit more. And share matra William H. Gass had this to say about the form. The limerick is the unrefiner's fire. It is as false and lifeless, as anonymous as a rubber snake. A Dixie cup. No one ever found a thought in one. No one ever found a helpful hint concerning life, a consoling sense. The feelings it harbors are the cold, the bitter, dry ones. Scorn, contempt, disdain, disgust, yes. Yet for that reason, nothing is more civilized than this simple form. In that, in cultural sophistication, it is the equal of the heroic couplet. That's the lesson of the limerick. You never know when a salacious meaning will break out of a trouser. It is all surface, a truly modern shape, a model's body. There's no inside, however long or far you travel on it. No within, no deep. I leave you with a limerick of Mr. Gass's from his novel The Tunnel. Trigger warning for the tradcaths, it probably constitutes sacrilege. So here we go. I once went to bed with a nun by pointing a pistol at one. Said she with a quaver, that's a good big persuader. But what is the point of the gun? Adventure, danger, intrigue. An internet flame war at the galactic scale. The Tin Galaxy at arms against itself, pitting brother against brother and at P against at P. On one side of the conflict, Emperor Edward Von Arcades VII rules with an iron fist. An absolute monarch. Uh...
the absolute ruler of the Galactic Empire, his fanatic dedication to bespoke U.S. design aesthetics has led to harsh sanctions against the GeoCities Alliance and the forcible shuttering of the Gum Road. Forming the other half of this Hegelian dialectic, Glyn Whale leads the Coalition of Free Planets as Lord Suggester, the truest democracy mankind has ever seen. All design implementations are decided on by using Lord Glyn's groundbreaking quantitative voting system. Here, all voices are heard and all user interfaces are created by popular vote. And in the middle of this conflict, strategically playing both sides against each other to its own advantage, the star Dalton. Dalton sits as the only gateway between these two mighty factions. The member of the Dalton Collective meet every Wednesday where they decide the fate of entire worlds. If you would gain access to the inner workings of this star chamber, you can find more at Dalton.org. And now, our conversation with Neil Davis. I just got an email or like a telegram message that says the COVID-19 vaccine causes AIDS. Here's all the evidence. So let's I talk s- about that. <laughs> <laughs> Is this because it's tying back to uh, Tony Fauci's no. uh, checkered history as uh, director of the? No, uh, I, I think I think there's. So this is um, this is a group of um, people here in the city in which I live that are extremely well educated and successful and like even to me complete cranks um and they are really really unhappy about the vaccines and i think that there is there and i i don't believe in mandates but the uh the thing is they there is something about the spike protein or whatever that they they think is like it's aids and so it will give you grids or aids or hiv i don't know i don't know what it is you know so um aids is a disease right so it's not um it maybe it's not it's something that does not have to be caused by the hiv virus i don't know That's a good start. Well, I don't know if I have so, a lot to a lot to say to it. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're, we're not gonna. We're not gonna. We're not I mean, we're gonna, we're all we infectious disease experts here. today. So right, 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 right. Yeah, that's no, the, just, uh, the beauty but, of having um, a podcast is that people expect you to to just speak, you know, extempore on all kinds of nonsense. And then I get I get a, my, my I get a message. As a clinical epidemiologist. Yeah, right. I get a message like. Why are you talking about it? You clearly have no idea what you're talking about. Here's, it's like oh the episode the episode where I was just explaining that um, I was reading this book recently about the uh, about the church um, the 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 calendar about the church calendar right and I I said the date of of some uh, of of a church holiday and I think I was I think I may have been right. Yeah, I show up Tuesday, and I was just off by a month. And so somebody came to the uh, to the group and was like, gave me a very long explanation about why I was a moron, basically. And then I just had to say, look, man, I, I grew up Baptist. We don't even have like a like a liturgical calendar. It doesn't exist for me. Um, right. But thank you. Never, I mean, never shrove anything in your life. I've never, never shrove yeah, anything in your life. <laughs> never shrove. Never shriven. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I appreciate the I, I appreciate the lesson, but I do look like a total nonce 
when I have to talk about anything uh, outside of like you know my very you narrow just have to rely, experience. You talk about things that people don't know, then you get the the gel, gel man or gel man. It's gel man amnesia. Yeah. The um are we are we, so we should talk about so we'll talk about Hoon School and yeah uh, pedagogy Hoon pedagogy. Sure yeah. thing. Is there a, is there a question? So we're we're um, launching. <laughs> so no, I think um so so just to back up and um whatever you don't want to talk about like as you you know sort of two person but I know like um so you taught a formal university like grad level course right in Hoon. Yes. Um, <clears throat> how did that how did that go? I mean like um, I mean a did they like Google it and get freaked out? Like what what happened? Okay, so what happened, the, the, the genesis for this was I did Ratfire Diglight's uh, Hoon School in fall 2019. And I've written a lot of courses over the years. And every now and then, you actually get to offer one of these courses. So, uh, you know, I've written a couple of courses in, in high-performance computing and scientific computing um, and never got to offer any of those. I did one on uh, digital typography that never went anywhere. And I've done some things on research tooling and research methodology that I, I have actually gotten to teach a few times. Um, to some extent, it's it's just a crapshoot to see what you what you throw at the committee and what makes it through. And it occurred to me as I was learning Hoon that this would be a really fantastic thing to examine at the grad seminar level with a bunch of intelligent grad students in a, in a good CS department and sort of pick the project apart and look at the way that, you know, the kernel structure, look at some of the mathematical underpinnings, uh, you know, just, just see who you get in the class and what kind of conversations can arise out of that. And I proposed this and it made it through committee. And uh, I felt a bit like the bulldog who had caught the parked car and now had to figure out what to do with it. So I ended up teaching it in fall of 2020. I probably got, I want to say around eight students that took it, uh, that, that found it through various ways. Um, there, were, there were some seniors and some grad students that were involved with it. Um, some of them were, were very traditional, you know, app-oriented um, CS seniors who were going straight on to industry afterwards. Uh, you know, we had a couple who were were more of like the old uh, like like the 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 gray beard in training you know where they're they're c unix kernel types uh that that had uh, very productive comments to make about the structure you know one of them was working on um you know jamming nouns and then trying to reconstruct the jam in unix from outside of hoon and so there are a lot of good conversations that came out because you just have a lot of intelligent beginners learning the system with you. So that's really fantastic. Uh, politically, it was interesting. Uh, so, you know, Illinois is a good school, but we're, so we are, we are a good CS department, but we mainly send people out. We don't bring them back in, right? So if you look at the other top CS departments in the country, it's places like Berkeley and MIT, and they're pretty much all on the coast because it turns out that in America, that's where most people want to live, right? Like most people want to live within a hundred miles of the coast. And so a lot of the uh, the political concerns that would be raised by doing something like this in a place like San Francisco never really feed back to a university like ours. Um, 
And so we, you know, I proposed it. Uh, ultimately, a, a student did email in to the department with, you know, uh, I don't know what degree of, of real or feigned outrage that the department would do this. Uh, you know, look at the person who founded this and, and some of the things he said about uh, X, Y, Z. And, um, you know, you know, bless, bless their heart. Uh, one of the... Um, advisors in the department was basically like, if we're going to start looking at the political inclinations of everyone who's ever written software, then we're never getting any, going to get anything done as a department. You know, like very old school, um, liberal, but like kind of a almost libertarian feel to it. Um, and that was the end of it. I, I never heard anything else about it. And so, you, uh, you so put by on and your, large, your, your I, I had boss prepared jumped some in your Volkswagen. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I, I had actually um, prepared a couple of lines of argument that I, d- I ended up never needing to use. And um, so far as this came out, um, how much experience in so like how much time was spent on the um, the Arvo kernel? How much on actually learning the nuts and bolts of Hoon and functional programming and everything like that? So it's hard to do a lot with the kernel until you know Hoon. Uh, because everything that you're looking at inside of the kernel is structurally expressed in terms of Hood. And so you have to at least be able to read uh, molds and values and these kinds of things to converse about what's going on. And so we spent probably about the first quarter to third of the class on the mechanics of Hoon and some discussion of azimuth and other things. I tried to break it up a lot because it's hard to just talk about a language for you know, days and weeks on end. Although this is what we're doing with Hoon School because that's what we have. That's what Hoon School is about. The and then we pivoted and we took a deep look at Arvo and spent a lot of time actually going through uh, the shorter vein. So Bain and Dill we went through in moderate detail. Um, we talked a lot about what Ames is doing. Didn't read Ames terribly deeply, but we talked about like the UDP packet structure uh, and how how some of these things are are done. We talked about NOC. Um, I actually went back and found starting at NOC thirteen Kelvin and working our way forward to the present NOC four Kelvin and comparing. You know, you can actually see the differences in the way that they're sort of trying to sort out what is the best expression for. Uh, how to how to build this virtual machine specification. And of course, you know, at this point, they only get, I don't know if they'll go to zero, Kelvin, but, um, you know, they, they only have a, a few more chances to change anything before they're locked in forever per the original mandate. And so then we looked at Azimuth and a little bit at, at the ecliptic contracts and spent, I think, four lessons on Gaul, uh, which is probably not as much Gaul as you would have expected, but I felt like the point of the class wasn't let's produce urban developers. The point of the class at that point um, at the university was let's examine what urban is trying to do as an object of interest and decide how well it's meeting those goals. And, uh, you know, some of the some of the interesting mathematical reductions around what's going on with Knox, some of the transformation rules between Hoon and Knox, et cetera. And how how familiar were people with functional programming before? So they had all had some. Um, so mainly they knew either OCaml or Haskell, neither of which I'm terribly familiar with. Um, I have the the um, what you might call disadvantage, uh, depending on the context. So I don't have any computer science degree. 
I teach in a computer science department, but I don't. My my background is nuclear engineering, uh, chemical and nuclear engineering, and so I I know how to use computers, and I've done a lot of uh, scientific programming in C and C plus plus and the like, but. I have never systematically formally studied computer science. I'm, I'm self-taught in computer science. And so, um, you know, they, they knew more about certain aspects of functional programming than I did because, you know, I, 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 you know, I read about Lambda calculus, for instance, but I'd never taken a class that dealt with the, the fundaments of computer science in a, in a strictly mathematical sense. When you are... Uh, starting Hoon School now, you start actually from what did you, what did you decide? What's your number scheme? Negative one or I start zero? from negative one. <laughs> negative one. Okay, so you've got the same number scheme as the stack. By the way, your negative one is going to be an introduction to computer science, I think, or to programming rather. And to to computation, I would even take it simpler. Okay. In that sense, so, um, I, well, go ahead. Well, just my question was going to be, what do you sort of what do you have to to use a horrible um, education term? What kind of scaffolding do you need before you start actually programming Hoon? Minimal so viable think, scaffolding. Right. One of one of the one of the things that I'm trying to motivate with doing that is why Urbit has the components and structure that it does. And so I'm arguing that if you want to fully specify what Urbit is, then you need to know about Azimuth, which is the identity system. You need to know about Urbit OS, which is you know one way of branding Arvo plus the veins. Um, you need to know about the virtual machine specification, which is NOC. And you need to know about the de facto way of writing operations on top of that system, which is Hoon. And each one of these are serving certain roles in a strictly computational sense. And so you're able to so so what I what I'm going to be motivating is you know why are we concerned about um, numeric representation and representation of operations? Um, how do we talk about uh, system state? You know event logs and the like. How do we how do we pull all this together in such a way that when you look at Urbit, all the parts of Urbit feel motivated to you. And therefore, you're able to say, okay, when I learn Urbit, I understand why these are considered the essential elements as opposed to other things which may or may not be considered part of the system. Um, one, of, one of the shifts that I've been making in describing Urbit to people is not calling it an OS or an operating function, which are the ways that it's been typically described in the past. I've been describing it as, as a platform instead, which I think lets people reason better analogically from, uh, you know, Ethereum virtual machine and Facebook and other systems, which are also themselves platforms. And I think um, yeah, the the goal of previous iterations of Hooniversity, Hoontards, whatever, um, was as much to kind of um, get people fired up about the entire ecosystem whatever their individual personal outcome was um and maybe you know less emphasis even on the on the outcome but now obviously things are in a much more evolved state and you said you know your the course that you taught was not about developing developers but um what about now i mean is is it now really the goal is to get people shifted more into actually being able to produce 
One of the questions that we have to figure out is what is the audience of people who's taking Hoon School? There's a number of reasons that people want to take Hoon School. And so if I go back, I can say, okay, we have, you know, intelligent uh, dilettantes, right? I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory sense, but... Uh, I think you know, we're, they're, they're, we're, we're guilty of having been that. Right. There's Maybe a lot of people in that category. No. <laughs> there's a lot of people in that category and that's a fine thing to be, right? Like I'm an amateur in a lot of the things that I study and look at and, and that's fine, right? Like, like it is good to do something for the love of the thing. But particularly now that we have better software development uh, mechanisms on our desks in particular and, and the what distribution and grid have been turning into. And we have more companies that are working in this space. We do have to figure out what is the best way to uh, bring new developers up to speed in a way that's going to make them productive, um, contributing members of the community. And this means not only can we teach someone to make software on Mars, but can we teach them to do it in the most robust way, which includes developing strategies for, uh, you know, uh, continuous integration and testing and validation of the behavior of things. Um, it includes making sure that we communicate to them the benefits of Urbit as a platform. This is something that I think has always suffered. Uh, you know, there, there's there's a, a meme in the Urbit community that every time Urbit goes on Hacker News, then, you know, you're just going to be mining salt for days. Uh, it's it's hard, you know. It, it evokes certain strong feelings. The ASCII rune based language uh, tends to off put a lot of people, which is a little bit funny to me because I think of it as very similar to APL um, in that sense. I mean, APL of course is is purely symbolic, but it's doing a similar sort of thing where the the symbols that you're using are defining the structural backbone of the computation that you're carrying out. Um, you know, I've, I've compared this before to picking up uh, like a lace wing. You know, it, it's something that you can see a macro scale very easily and you can fractally zoom in on parts of it and understand each part of the system. Uh, but they all have a characteristic structure and it's always visible to you because of the way that runes are operating. Anyway, uh, what what I do want to communicate to people is that Urbit is a development platform that once you've gotten over the admittedly steep learning curve, it will speed up your development time enormously. You know, I, I have found for myself that once I can get something to compile, which means getting past the, uh, the static uh, typing compiler issues and making sure that I have my rune structured correctly and I have all the marks pulled in on the right desk. Once I've gotten to that point, I'm often 80 or 90 percent done with it. Uh, you know, the, the, the programs are surprisingly close to complete because Urbit offers a lot of the right primitives that you frequently need in programs. Now, one of the things I haven't done yet that I, that I would like to do is start working with cross-agent or cross-desk information, similar to what Orca and Escape and some other projects are starting to do now. Uh, you know, uh, Pals and Face do this, for instance, where they're they're pulling data from each other and using that to inform uh, the state of any one particular agent. So, I, so there's a lot of promise there, and I think as we 
as we continue to build out and settle on what, what the right system and state primitives are on Urbit and building the right, uh, basically the right API layer on top of that, it's just going to get more and more powerful. There's going to be a compounding effect as we do that. If someone is living in the, in the traditional development world, what sort of benefits, like if they really wanted to do something different, if they're hitting that, you and I were talking about it off camera. Uh, you know, they, they've gotten to their mid thirties and they're, they're saying to themselves, it's, I'm going to do something great with my life and it's now or never. What sort of benefits does a programmer get from using the Urbit platform that they can't get in sort of traditional, the traditional programming world? So if you think about what Urbit is offering you as a system, it has baked into the cake things like identity and authentication. And by implication, attestation that you can demonstrate unique cryptographic ownership of, of a point. Um, and it's set up in a way that is going to keep you from screwing up things in ways that are commonly screwed up. So, for instance, it's easy to imagine a world where with enough things built on Urbit, you don't really need to keep track of passwords anymore. And passwords are the sort of thing that are done wrong all the time. Because not because they're like particularly hard to do right, but because they're just kind of a pain to do right. So, you know, the right way to do a password is to do something like uh, you store you store the hash of the password plus assault, right? You never store the password itself and you never transmit the password. But time and time again, we hear about systems where developers are transmitting unsalted, unhashed passwords in plain text over a network without any encryption at all. And there's some sort of sniffer or man in the middle attack that takes this information out. Um, there are all sorts of data leaks from centralized databases. You know, the, the one that um, I think we all enjoy to hear about the, the fallout from was the Ashley Madison leak. But there have been a lot of others that have caused people much more grief uh, with identity theft and so forth. These things are, I mean, I'm not saying that you could never have an identity theft problem on Urbit, but it would be a lot harder to do. And you'd have to think you know, if, you, if you're the, the, the malware author doing whatever's going on, um, you would have to pwn more parts of the system for that to be a feasible attack. And so by providing authentication, by providing uh, identity, by providing a, a backend database that is going to be persistent across systems, right? You, you, get, you get state for free as well, uh, you know, once you know how to talk to a Gaul agent. Then... You're able to avoid having to reinvent the wheel every time you sit down to start a project, which is something that a lot of developers end up doing. Now, Urbit is in many ways still relatively immature as a system. It, I think I would call it at this point a developer beta. It's, it's definitely solidifying as a platform, but I could expect a handful of breaking changes to come out in the future. You know, for instance, uh, there's there's been talk about, you know, do we unify Clay and Gaul, right? Do we unify the file system? Clay and Gaul are separate for historical reasons, not for conceptual reasons. So there may be a good reason to, uh, you know, uh, roll them together into a single new vein. And I can imagine that would probably break a lot of existing workflows because they're, they're built on that. Um, you know, I think there's a few things like that that'll come out. But for the most part... 
the the shape of the diamond is starting to emerge as we chip everything off that isn't diamond, right? You you can see what the core conceptual uh, pearl at the heart of Urbit looks like. And so if you're a developer, if you're trying to think about, you know, why is, is it worth my time to build on Urbit? Compare it to other systems that have been extremely ambitious in the past and are currently extremely ambitious. Think about the kinds of flaws and faults that have plagued them or that have led them to not have uh, mainstream appeal in the way that you would hope. Uh, some of these are nice bespoke projects that have a lot of promise and value that were never realized for some for some reason, uh, things like BIOS or Plan 9 from Bell Labs. And to some extent, some of these ideas were strip-mined into future operating systems. I mean, I, I know that uh, the Urban developers have cited Plan 9 as uh, one of their, their many uh, inspirations. There have been uh, basically auteur projects like uh, Ted Nelson's Xanadu, Temple and OS. some of the ideas from the Temple OS is a really fantastic one um, and the things that have come out of it. And 640 by 480 they're, they're is, the, at, is the Lord's that's, – that's, that's, that's the Lord's aspect ratio, I think, right? There are so many why, fantastic why things there? in the Temple OS project. <laughs> Um, why? Why isn't Urbit at a at a Temple OS levels? Or no, I I want to know why we we Urbit should be six forty by four eighty because that's already established as like the you know the the as as God's uh, preferred ratio. Well, Urbit is actually agnostic about ratio, right? Yeah, but God doesn't. I mean, I mean Urbit is well, a is a backend, right? <laughs> agnosticism is unacceptable, you know. <laughs> It's it's agnostic in the sense that uh, math is agnostic. Let's say, right? It's not it's not that it it claims that knowing is impossible. It's that it it exists in a state of agnosis. Well, it's a freedom a freedom of conscience. You know, mm -hmm. the, the the truth is there. You know, the light is there, but you. you it's left to you to decide. We're just going to trust people to get to oh, end up on it. 640 by 480. That's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They'll get there on their you, own. You will know them by their fruits, right? That's right. That's it. Straight is the gate or something like that. <laughs> Narrow is the way and few there be that find it. <laughs> um, so, so if I'm appealing to, to developers to say, why take a serious look at Urbit? Besides the kinds of things that are built on it, it solves a lot of problems that... Web3 and blockchain developers have been running into with DAO administration with the relative expense of carrying out calculations on things like EVM. Ethereum's the grill in the room. The problem with Ethereum is that people have been deceived by the success of Bitcoin into thinking of Ethereum as a store of value. And the problem is that high Ethereum is a flaw, not a feature. Right, like the point of Ethereum, ideally, right? If you're trying to think about like, like what is the true Ethereum? The true Ethereum is cheap distributed computation. High gas, high ETH are both flaws that undercut the, the basic integrity of the entire project. And this isn't even without getting into like ETH Classic and, and uh, proof of stake and the, these other kinds of concepts that are thrown around. Like the, the project as it is currently structured has a fatal wedge in the heart of it, which is that people are trying to treat it as a store of value. 
and that's incompatible with the with the stated design goal of EVM. That's the that's, that's the spiel for developers. Come to Urbit. Come to Mars. So I mean, and, and how how different is or kind of so far? Do you know how broad the reach is for Hoon School? You know, sort of how how much experience you know, it's kind of like complete newbies, what they're doing. So I did ask a little bit about programming background, and right now it looks like it's pretty much a third, a third, a third between have never programmed before, have done hobby programming, and professional developer. So I am going to have to pay careful attention to how do I keep these cohorts uh, synchronized enough with each other as we go forward, because I really do want this to be something that anyone can step into and get up to speed on on what's happening and what's going on. Um, I have... I have mixed feelings about Hoon as a first programming language. There are things that it does well, and there are things that it doesn't do uh, completely ideally. I mean, I'm not saying go all the way back to something like MIT Scratch, but particularly Python 2, for instance, was a really ideal introductory programming language, uh, particularly for English speakers. And... It, it introduced some bad habits because it has dynamic typing and so you learn some sloppy, sloppy things as you did it. But, you know, I think people will do fine with Hoon. Um, it does definitely teach you to te- think in terms of structure, which is a unique experience that is it's, – it's common to the Lisp-like languages, but most other languages don't encourage you to do that nearly as much. Uh, something like C or C++ – you are largely thinking in terms of uh, basically mechanical operations. It's very recipe-like, and it's hard for you to see the overall structure of the program at a high level in the way that Hoon will immediately hand this to you. At Assembly, you did a uh, – was that a dry run? No, that was a completely different thing. Um, I probably should go back and try and uh, – merge it, merge the stream back in from the assembly project. But I have the habit that every time I sit down to write curriculum, I start from scratch. I don't like to recycle material because I feel like I've learned something new every time I teach it. And so there's both the discipline of trying to find new and better ways to express the concept that you're getting across and the advantage of because you've taught it previously and have learned better things like the metaphors and analogies that come into play, uh, you, you can hopefully express things a little bit more clearly. Teaching is a lot more like acting than it is like cinema. Um, I think that it, particularly administration in higher education tends to think of teaching as being very mechanical and wrote uh, in the sense that, you know, we can record classes and then we can put them online and then we're able to to profit from sharing them with all of these students. And there is a right and wrong way to do online instruction, uh, many, most of which knowledge was completely ignored during the great shift to online learning in 2020. But teaching is incredibly improvisational. Even if I have complete written notes, you know, and, and I, I know other instructors do this as well. Even if you have, you have a complete outline for what you're trying to do, there are all sorts of ways of reacting 
to the audience and the way that they're thinking of things, the kinds of questions they ask, uh, just the temperature of the room, the way that people are, are responding to you that force you into new ways of discussing and exploring ideas live. And so it's incredibly valuable to actually teach something live. It changes the way that you think about uh, the topic. It's different than reading. It's different than writing curriculum. Uh, you always get something new out of teaching it to a classroom or teaching it online. Um, you know, part of it is it's like conversation, right? There's a, there's a lot of ideas that you have that until you express them verbally to someone else in a solid conversation, they never become crystal clear to you what it is, right? They 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 remain inchoate and nascent and and unclear and murky to you. But once you've done it in a classroom, you, you're basically always leveling up. You know, the normal, the normal room that I, I've taught in at the University of Illinois is an auditorium that can seat 1,500. And my normal class has about 720 students in there. Uh, they don't go much larger than that because it's hard to move that many people in and out during the break time between classes. Plus, now they could infect really each other fun. with COVID. Well... <laughs> You know, modulo, uh, modulo, uh, the alternate reality that we live in at, at this point, the virtual reality. But it's it's teaching in a room that was designed for designed for sightlines. It was designed for acting. You know, it's not most classrooms have the flaw that you're in a square room because the architect drew one big rectangle and then he started chopping out, uh, you know, here's a here's a hallway and here's a classroom. And so everything's square. And so when you walk into a room, it has to have all these acoustic panels on the wall because because it's functionally terrible as a classroom. Most classrooms are really bad at being classrooms, especially newer classrooms. Um, but if you ever get the chance to to act or teach in a theater in the round. They're, they're absolutely, absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, a lot of the TED uh, stages that they set up are set up in this way. And I think that is one advantage, um, you know, as, as, as Redditor as TED is, I think they do tend to set up the audience um, presenter relationship very well. But one of the things that I, that I learned early on and I had, to, I had to learn how to do was to control the energy level. Um, the... It used to, I used to feel when I would go in and teach, you know, 700 people and with that many people, you don't get much feedback from the audience, right? Like there, there's milling around and there's coughing and there's shuffling and these kinds of things. But if you ask a question, there aren't that many people that are willing to raise their hand and give you feedback, right? Or, or ask you questions about what's going on. And so uh, it's much more like a soliloquy where you just have to, you have to keep it flowing. You have to keep it going, but you also have to manage the energy level, which is uh, it's like dancing on the edge of a whirlpool, right? Like there's there's just this huge energy sink in front of you and you have to learn how to pump yourself up into almost this manic state to make it possible. Uh, and so, you know, you get to the end of teaching and uh, for me, it's frequently, I'm either, I'm either on a manic high or I'm on a depressed low at the end of teaching just because of, of what the energy level has done to me. And, you know, over time, I've gotten better at managing that aspect of it. But it's, but it's been interesting to observe that. And it has a lot to do with whether or not I've figured out new and better ways of expressing what I'm hoping to express in a given lecture or a given lesson uh, and the way that, uh, that people are reacting to and accepting or rejecting the kinds of things that I'm saying in that context. 
Yeah, I have some I have some experience with this because I teach in the classroom as well. And uh, my I, I think that I have the same experience you do, which is that well, I, I don't know how you feel about your paperwork, but I I find that if anyone is praising me, it's for my performance in the classroom. Uh, and that's because the only thing about the job that I enjoy is the part where I'm in front of students being performative. And this, it, there's something very different about it because I, I've got you two on a flat screen and I find it quite difficult sometimes to like, I'll get, I'll get stuck in a moment and think, oh my God, I've got to ask a question now. So this is a very, to it's a totally different dynamic for me, which is that, uh, you know, I'm performative when I'm in front of a classroom and now I've got these two flat panels and I'm supposed to be asking questions all the time. And it's a very sort of like the, the dynamic has totally changed for me so that uh, now I'm sort of I feel like I'm on the defensive sometimes in a conversation. And it's very strange because if we were sat around a table, you know, having drinks, uh, no problem keeping up conversational flow. But there's something very strange about the online experience. Do you have a do you have a different experience when you're teaching? Well, clearly, obviously you do. But I mean, how is it how is it different switching to COVID world? virtual online presentation? I had the advantage that I had actually taught a lot of online uh, workshops before COVID started. And so, it wasn't a completely new modality for me to start working with at that time. And I had a lot of tricks up my sleeve that I'd learned from co-teaching workshops with other people during that time period as well. Uh, things like, you know, pacing it. So, you know, every 10 or 15 minutes, you have an activity where there's like a breakout room or something and then people are interacting with each other. And it also gives you a chance to sort of pause and clear your head and then you're, you're ready to work on the next thing. Uh, depends a lot on who you're teaching. You know, if you're, if you're presenting to, you know, 300 blank Zoom screens, then it's really hard to figure out what's going on. And it, it does end up being, you know, it's similar in that it is like a monologue, right? You keep, you keep talking and you get good at making sure that the, the pace of the words and the diction that you're doing is continuing to go forward, right? Um, for, for better and for worse, it, it's less expressive of a medium. You know, I do a lot of hand gestures and I really like to walk when I teach. And that's the thing I think I miss the most is being able to occupy the space and, and walk around. Um, the Being able to actually teach on a stage with a, with a lapel mic and you can move around and talk to people is fantastic. It's even better if you're in an, an intimate enough space that you don't need a microphone at all, right? Like I feel like the microphone is, a, is in and of itself uh, inherently a, an alienating device because it's a medium, right? It's something between you and the person. And it's much better if you're in a room and you can probably scale this up to 40 to 60 students, depending on the room that you're in. Um, if you can just talk and be heard by everyone and keep that going for hours, that's the best experience. That's the best way to do it. You know, there's nothing between you and them. There's no speakers. There's no tech. It's just you talking to them. You know, maybe you have slides. Maybe you have whatever else is going on. But that's the highest level of intimacy that you can get is being able to talk to people, even if it's still an instructor-student relationship rather than a peers around a table sort How, of format. Um, what about a asynchronicity? Asynchronous. A 
You know, I think that's that's the big change in in pedagogy now, especially um, you know, you see it in that dilettante programmer area where you know, like Udemy or whatever Code Academy, a lot of people are wanting to do things just um, a la carte as you need it. I can sit down. I've got an hour to spare. I have 15 minutes to spare. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this exercise. And so you don't, it's, it's not just that it's on a screen. It's that that person isn't even there, right? It's a, it's a time capsule and mm -hmm. there is no interaction whatsoever. And Hoon School will be like that. Hoon School is like that, right? Well, I am doing it on Zoom, so it will be potentially interactive. Yeah, you're doing I did, two different sessions, I kicked around doing sessions, it on right? StreamYard. Right, and I'm doing two sessions, and then um, um, Jack in uh, Sweden is doing a, a third session for the European evening on a few days' delay from that. So, there, there will be a lot of interactivity there. I mean, asynchronous teaching in general, I think, is, is a fundamentally different animal. There's, there's a dirty secret in education, which is that there's basically only three ways to teach that actually work, right, that are, that are efficacious. Uh, the first of these is tutorial method. And this is the old, you know, Oxford-Cambridge method where, you know, you, you may have some, some classes with a tutor, but very frequently throughout the week, you are meeting one-on-one -on -one with that tutor and you are being orally examined uh, on the basis of the products that you made. So, you know, you, you would have an English tutor and you would write a paper and you would bring it to them and they would quiz you on the paper and they would, you know, they'd tear apart your grammar. Uh, do all these, you, you get a sense of sort of how this works from the uh, biographical writings of like C.S. Lewis, for instance. So the tutorial method is the first one. Uh, the second one is a method called peer instruction. It was developed for physics and it's, it's, a tightly architected way of asking questions to a classroom and having students discuss the answers, come up with answers in small groups, and then come back to the whole group where you then reveal the correct answer and talk through any misconceptions that were involved with the production of that. And then there's cohort instruction, which is, which is a form of online instruction that is typically synchronous. And... Uh, so this is uh, Maven does this, for instance, does cohort instruction, and I'm, I'm basically building Hoon School Live around cohort instruction, where you're keeping people synchronous with each other for the most part. There are there are defined milestones, and some of the materials may be asynchronous, but everyone is expected to advance and participate as a group. And the dirty secret is that nothing else works, right? If anything else works, it works because the student is self-motivated enough to basically learn the material themselves, right? Uh, huge lectures don't consistently work. Lectures can work if you have someone who's extremely good at lecturing, but most people aren't. Most professors aren't that good at lecturing, right? It, it, it's, a, it's a very concrete skill, and it's like charisma. Like, you know when you're dealing with someone who is good at lecturing. So there's, there's a sense in which, uh, you know, that's probably not controversial to say on the urbit, uh, side of things, but, you know, 95% of higher education is crap, right? Uh, you know, 90% of everything is crap, but, you know, probably 95% of higher education in the sense that it is very architected around the credentialing. 
And that's the thing that you're getting out of it. And there's not even at this point, in my opinion, a lot of feigning instruction. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're going through the motions of instruction um, and we're grading people on things, but it's we're not doing what would be the right way to do it if that really were the primary mandate. What is it about the, the great uh, lecturer that's, that's great? Is it that he's presenting the material in some way that's accessible to everybody or is it that he is a performer who's making something extremely memorable? I think it's some of both, but I think the tricky part about it is that it is completely unique, right? Like I can't do what someone else does and do a good lecture. I can I can watch other people. I can watch those that I see great lecturers, but it is it is a an engagement of your personality with the people that you're teaching. And you can't fake it. And you have to learn what it is. Like you don't you don't get it for free. You have to learn what that interaction looks like. And I'm not claiming that I like, you know, I'm a great lecturer. I'm just saying that I, I've seen great lectures and I know how they work. And I really do believe that it's a thing that you have to find and capture for yourself. And there's no shortcut to it. You just you just have to spend uh, probably hundreds, if not thousands of hours in front of a classroom getting the experience of, of what that looks and feels like. Well, and there, there are some uh, disciplines and subjects that lend themselves to it and others that never would, right? I think that's probably fair, but which do you have in mind? Uh, well, I mean like, um, you know, ex, ex, nu nuclear physics, nu nuclear, nuclear, nuclear physics. Nuclear. Right? <laughs> um, I, don't, I mean like, you know, as, so, aspects of it would be fine, but I mean, obviously in a laboratory setting, that sort of thing, you know, research methods, it's it's harder. And, and you would never even have the audience, right? There would never be the demand for a 1200 person seminar. Right. They aren't that big. That's one thing. So, so I was actually taught by Roy Axford, who was the first nuclear engineering PhD in the country, um, got his degree in like 58 or 60. You know, one one of the the old guard. You know, he would talk about like Julian Schwinger and and Dick Feynman and these guys because he knew them, right? He'd he'd, he'd worked with them. Um, he passed away, I think, last year. But he taught probably up to within a couple of years of of when he passed away. You know, very very old. Um, his lecturing style was very old school. He was a, he was a very good lecturer, but his his lecturing style was he would go to the chalkboard. And he would just write equations and narrate the equations to you. And it was absolutely arresting. It was absolutely fascinating because he could talk very authoritatively and in depth about the roots of the, um, the notation and syntax that were being used mathematically. Uh, he was always interjecting uh, anecdotes about people he'd known or times they'd, they'd use these equations when he was at Los Alamos and these sorts of uh, 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 local color, right? But but completely irreplaceable, right? No one no one can do what he did. You know, he'd, he'd like to, he'd stop and he'd talk about the time Julian Schwinger bought a pink Cadillac and was parking it in the, in the uh, MIT uh, physics building parking lot, these sorts of things. Um, and so, so it worked for him, right? Like he found a way. Um, I mean, modulo the fact that some fields are fake and probably can't be taught well for that reason. I think any real field, any field that has contact with truth probably has a, an engaging way that the right person can find to teach it. My theory there is that the, the or a major benefit is the same one that you get from people who people who study uh, memory techniques. The, the memory palace 
the the benefit you get there is that you've got you've got this professor who is who is creating you know so like you said he he's explaining to you the syntax but he's also attaching that syntax to some uh fascinating historical moment and so that stays with you as part of the the furniture of your mind from there on i i think that that's that's uh very useful and and when i'm lecturing i i'm trying to well not really trying to it comes out that that you know i end up telling some weird anecdote from an example is trying to explain to someone you know how can you move how can you move information from one place to another how can you communicate when all you have is two uh two states right you're trying to explain binary <laughs> to somebody you only have two states but uh, you know if you're imagine teaching this to like a to an eighth grader they have no context at all um so you can explain sort of like how the old modems worked have you ever heard that old modem sound you know not to say that it was binary but you know that 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 is just information being passed uh via sound right and then you're, you're you not get... going to be able to use that example for much longer no that's true that's true i have i am at the point where i actually have to play the sound for them and they go oh i think i've heard that you know uh but then but then what you do is you you get them to actually write a message in binary you know from go from binary to 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 english letters and then have them stand up in the classroom and actually do like a two two different sounds to pass the message you know like a beep and a boop for a zero and a one that sort of stuff you know that you at, gets added into the lecture and makes it very memorable and the fact that you look like an idiot is great uh, so yeah it's just like really good lectures is what i'm saying come up with these these things that uh, make the concept stick in the mind beep and boop do that in front of a class you know where you become the modem full of teenagers and uh, it really sticks, but also you have to have quite a thick skin, you know. How um, so with uh, Hoon School then? Is is there going to be a capstone project that people do on their own? Kind of what is the um, you know you have exercises and then build up towards something. Is it going to be a gal app? Is it going to be what? What, what is your vision? So Hoon School itself is going to be homework based. And so there will be a submission through a final homework. We are going to run a competition after that. Details forthcoming. But for instance, we're going to have prizes for the uh, the first working submission in a given category or the shortest working submission um, or the most uh, characteristically hoonish way of writing something as determined by, by blind jury. <laughs> Uh, so, so they'll, so we're we're going to do that as a follow up to Hoon School. So that'll be in May, May June, uh, which will give them a chance to show off what they learned doing Hoon School. But it's not going to be directly part of Hoon School. Uh, Hoon School itself is really built around just can you learn the language Hoon? And in the past, there's been a follow on that they were calling Hoon Two Hundred One that was Gaul. So I think that we will have uh, like a Gaul school in the future that builds on this and is a natural follow-on that, that walks them through building an app. I think to actually design that, I'm going to have to go back and do some work because I've never done front-end work myself. Mm. Uh, so I need to go learn a little bit more about how JavaScript and things work. Uh, you know, I can read it, but 
uh, at this point, I can't write JavaScript. So I need to go, I need to go figure that out before I write Gall school so that what we end up with at the end of that is, you know, deals with globs and, and these other uh, things that the travails of software on Urbit. Yeah. Someone asked me uh, recently if I know how to code and I said, uh, I teach computer science. So the answer there is no. <laughs> Fair enough. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, I spend I spend a surprising amount of my time hacking together scripts in Bash. I, I teach I teach Python at the high school level, so it's not it's no, mm-hmm. it's nothing. I, I I'm the one who's like teaching those kids the the poor design patterns, and then they get like shifted off to you, and you have to fix what, them. What do um what do intro CS students learn now? Is it because I I always thought there was value in C because it's hard um, or it kind of more foreign and Python can be deceptively uh, pseudocodish and um, right. also like you said I mean some of the bad habits with memory um, and typing and things like that but but it seems like maybe you think that it's a little bit more broad you know that actually Python might be better but what, what are you finding more useful well it depends on who you're teaching uh, I don't think Python is a good language for teaching computer science students mm-hmm. first. Um, I do think it's a good language for the general audience. I mean, I started on QBasic, you know, way back when. So, I, I was comfortable with, uh, you know, working with a, with a higher level language in that sense. The current favorite that I see everyone use is Java, which is a terrible beginner language, but it has so much tooling around it that I think that's de facto why it's so popular for CS students. Uh, I've started to see Kotlin more as well. So, you know, I think I think there's a, a few things in that vein. There are some classes that attempt to start with C or C++ still. My main objection to those is not that C and C++ aren't good languages to learn or even cannot be taught in a beginner-friendly way. It's that every time I see someone teaching C, for instance, it feels like they're basically teaching C89 and Mm. not modern C. And I feel like if you're going to teach C, you should teach what C looks like now, not what C looked like when they were writing the first version of the Linux kernel. That's probably unfair. And if is it is it be, is it like kind it. of humbug? Is it humbuggery? Like this is what I know, or this is what I had to learn, and so you're going to learn it. Is it because that's what like the K and S or whatever, like the kind of canonical textbooks are written in, or what? What's the deal? So there's definitely technical debt, both in the tooling that's built around a class and in the um, written materials. So, you know, it's, it's easy I, to grade. I, I use, I'm going to use the same syllabus kinds of that things. I've used since 19, 1984 or whatever. Well, it's the, it's the great Gatsby, <laughs> right? That's the, that's right. the problem is, is that every, Romeo every and teacher Juliet and the great Gatsby. Has, yeah. Yeah. Teaches the great Gatsby and Romeo and Juliet. And so the material, like when you're planning a class, I mean, I, I'm guilty of this as well, which is that when you're planning a class, I can start from scratch every time if I had time uh, or I can use all this stuff that has been created for me for the past 30 years. So every you can teach from spark notes. Reading the great guess. Right, right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so I think that I at least didn't. I mean, I teach Python, but I teach Python to non CS engineers. So I'm talking to engineers like 
mechanical, civil, nuclear engineers, physicists, not computer science students. Um, you know, they take a different class that is um, Java and Kotlin. So I, I think I avoided that because I didn't find a textbook that I liked. <laughs> so I, I largely ended up writing the class that, as, as it now stands from scratch, uh, together with, a, with another faculty. Um, one of the things that's going on, though, is that any time you want to fight the holy war of programming language, you have to contend with all of the classes that depend on it downstream. And so yeah. you are not free to make the choice arbitrarily. So you can't, you can't it's, come it's in and say, you, you guys are going to learn Hoon because the guys in the 300, teaching the 300 level class are going to be like, why, why the hell are they showing up not knowing Java? MATLAB or whatever, right? Right. Right. Yeah. It's a negotiated truce. It's a negotiated truce. And to change that takes an enormous amount of, of overcoming inertia, right? The activation energy for that has to be pretty big. It could be on the scale of, uh, you know, other departments, client departments saying, well, we're just not going to use your, your unit's service course anymore. And then you say, oh, well, we don't want to lose those instructional hours, so we are going to upgrade the class. I've seen that sort of thing happen. Um, Who's the Apex Predator you know, think, department? In, <laughs> like in, who, in what? Yeah, well, I, I just mean like who, who really gets to whip it out and say, you're going to do things the way that we want it. To some extent, mathematics is that way. Uh, they do they do work a lot with engineers and computer science and stats and other units, but every place that I've ever been or taught or known anything about the internal workings, mathematics has always been very aggressive about owning the space of mathematics, right? Like it is not permitted for the business college to teach a calculus for business majors, mm. Right. Like, like mathematics, you must contend with them. Whereas with a lot of other things, you know, there's there are like stats, stats for, for bioinformaticians. Yeah, right. And, and and they're not owned by one particular department, um, which is funny because I don't think of mathematics in my experience as being a powerful department, but they definitely have hegemony over their intellectual space. Well, that's the that's the thing. The power likes to hide. Right. You, shadowy. You don't, you don't shadowy know. Shadowy Jesuits. It's actually. <laughs> The wokest department is actually just uh, it's 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 all some ploy by the math people. We but haven't yeah, figured I mean, it out yet. Yeah, they, they we're undercutting. <laughs> we're getting close to the beast. I mean, it's funny. I but then like I um I think I shared it maybe on another episode, but um had dinner once with a mutual friend who was a uh, quite senior professor at a top engineering university georgia tech and he was um you know just this guy who's like you know tenured math whatever had been at texas georgia tech and then um but he said like he has this like 30 year old project manager breathing down his neck every day asking him where the hell his grant money is you know and why isn't he out there raising more money for the you know for projects so he, he said he was just telling all of his students go to google Go to wherever, you know, don't don't stay in the academy. So, um, you know, and obviously this is a, a bag of worms that 
could probably spend hours talking about but um you know <laughs> do we he, want to go down this road or? no 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 you don't i mean like um but it but i i'm just saying i mean like even and i i maybe that's just at that university but i doubt it right you know that even even if you get to flex these academic muscles you're always kind of having to feed this this other administrative beast um no obviously people should not be going uh, to google they should be taking hoon school dropping out of their phd programs and going to hoon they it worked for Logan. Should. We had Logan last week, and and it worked for him. He quits. He's a school leaver. He's a school leaver. Yeah, I can respect that. My my, you know, I got the PhD in nuclear engineering, and I really intended to go to a national lab and spend my whole career designing nuclear bombs at Los Alamos or Sandia or Livermore. Um, it turns uh, out they, that's not what happened. So they took they took the dream. Well, we're not the, building the, many the of them most anymore. Manly, the most manly yeah, dream the, you Leslie Grove. had it in your hands. Well, I mean, it's it's funny because there's. I mean, I'll, I'll say this because I'm leaving academia. Uh, there, there's an entire secondary literature about the angst of academics who feel like they're they're betraying the vocation uh, to which they were called when they either got their got their grad school letter or they got their uh, tenure or whatever it is. Uh, it's kind of an interesting, you know, you don't really get that with any other field, but there's, there's very much a sense of, of um, going out into the wild when one leaves academia and there's an extremely strong culture from within of not doing it. Um, you know, and to some extent, it's because people leave academia, but it's a very, very uncommon for someone to come back to academia. Right, it's a one-way exit, and you don't know what's on the other side of that door. No, so you're you're out. So, you're you are you are leaving. I, I'm I'm leaving. Um, I'm going full time to foundation in May. Wow. Do you want us? To, do you want us to keep that in? Because yeah, I that's think fine. All right. they know. Okay. Okay. I think they're trying to they're trying to hook you though. What's that's it? That's fine. It's 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 nice to feel wanted. It is nice. Yeah. What's the what's and the I, number? And I've to- enjoyed. We're good. <laughs> No, I was just I was just going to ask what the number is to keep you. Right. I I very much enjoyed being a professor and a lot of aspects of the academic lifestyle. But I've also come to realize that a lot of the things I value about it don't really exist anymore and are unlikely to come back into existence in my lifetime. Um kind of kind of the ideal of the scholar who can work unmolested on a project um, and, you know, spend all your time in the, in the deep in the library stacks. I mean, I used to go in the library stacks. Uh, you go way back in them and you can't get Wi-Fi. And I would sit back there for, you know, four or five hours and just uh, but this read is, or this do is where deep the mist- work or whatever. Yeah. I mean, and you got that. And that's sort of an echo of a great age. Um, but that's mm-hmm. largely lost. And like I, it was, it was bumping around on, on Twitter, but there was a, um, a graphic of, um, and they only really have this data for law schools, I guess. But when the, uh, mandatory retirement age for professors at 65, I can't remember when it was. It was, maybe it was younger, right, than, maybe right. it was 60. But when that was relaxed, basically just nobody retired. And so the average age of, 
uh, tenured professors in law schools is now like a gorillion. Like it's like, um, or it's like Leonardo DiCaprio's yeah. girlfriends, right? Like they, they, they oscillate between 19 and 23 and then, and then reset. Um, but it just has, there has not been a reset and there probably never will be. But like boomers like look at that and they're like, what, like, what do you mean? Like this, this academia is fantastic. You just came and it's like, yeah, well, you got a lab when you were 25 and you've, you've never left. Like that's, that's great. And then other people, they come in like, obviously it's just not, not the same. And so that's where the mystification is. And you can extrapolate that to much broader into society and the country and everything like that. Um, right. There's, there's definitely, I mean, people talk about things like adjunct hell and that's what they're referring to is that to make it in academia for many people, it means taking adjunct positions at several area universities at the same time and teaching, you know, four or five classes a semester. Right. And Spending of, all of your salary on gas going between them. Yeah. Unreal. Right. Um, you know, I, I have been extremely fortunate. I got a good department. Um, I got a good position teaching. I mean, in some sense, I kind of got a unicorn. Um, and I will, I will say that that, that has always been my, um, my biggest misgiving about doing something different has not been like, I'm excited to work with Urban Foundation and do new things, um, explore a new area. But I've also just been extremely blessed and I'm very grateful for like what I had in the position that I had and in the, the opportunities that I had uh, with respect to, yeah, getting, getting in, in libraries and dealing with students in classrooms. Um, actually, I'll, I'll say this because it'll never make it back to anyone, but at, at two different universities, I used to always try windows. And if I found an open window, I would climb out on the roof and go uh, just read on the roof for hours at a time where, <laughs> where no one could find you, no one could see you. Uh, <laughs> So I have a lot of I have a lot of fond memories of, of being up on on flat gravel strewn roofs with a bird's eye view of campus and just doing my work or, or my my thinking up there. Um, and I think it's it's become much much harder for people to get away with that sort of uh, flaunting of the of the order. When uh, when William Gass was a grad student, he he said uh, he. He, he basically lived in the stacks. This is obviously this is way before phones. And he said, it, it used to be the sort of atmosphere where you could get angry about what you were reading and throw a book through a window and just go to the librarian and pay for the window. Uh, which is to say, you know, you could, you could, it was a boys club and, uh, you know, it was a totally, totally different um, experience when he, he would have been in grad school in the 50s. So. Um, you know, smoke in the library, get angry, throw a book through a window, pay for it, and nobody said anything about it. I mean, there's there's a lot of things. I mean, you mentioned phones. I think there's definitely been a sea change, and I started to see it in about 2017. Of uh, some of with students' familiarity with uh, metaphors like files and folders, mm. right? Because like, what's what's a file on a on a phone, right? Like, right. it's just it's opaque to you uh, what that is. Um, you know, I have a colleague who works in mechanical engineering who complains that he can't hire master students who have ever taken apart an engine anymore. Mm. That, that people just at some point in the past 15 or so years, they just stopped doing that sort of thing. And people don't read. 
I think that's that's abundantly apparent, uh, both in the quality of the writing that you get, right? Because I don't think you can really write until you've read a few hundred thousand sentences. Um, but also, the reading comprehension is absolutely minimal. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it, in many ways, it does feel like yet another passing you know, it's the, the the history of the West, I think, in particular, since World War One, and possibly much earlier, uh, you know, everyone's always lamenting what went before. But you can definitely identify several inflection points where things changed fundamentally in a way that made the past incomprehensible to them, illegible, uh, incommensurable. And I think that the widespread use of smartphones in particular is doing that. And I don't want to be all, you know, old man Davis shakes his cane at the sky about it. You know, I recognize that it's changed, but uh, I'm also not going to change that way. Right? That's 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 a change that I reject. I'm not I'm not willing to follow down that road, um, which is, you know, another reason why I think it makes sense to go to something like Urbit. And there's at least an idea of like slow computing, calm computing that's, that's affiliated with it that I think is more compatible with um, quiet reflection and reading and and sitting with material and ideas rather than feeling the frenetic need to consume the next thing in the queue. Are you, has Hoon School started already? We are starting on this Thursday. Okay. And it's – all right. So, so it's we, have, two, and it, we haven't yeah. quite started. Okay. Okay. Well, if that's – is that going to be neg- minus one or is that zero? That'll be minus one. Okay, minus well, one and zero are both optional. It, our this this podcast will go out the day I guess the day that zero that that zero happens. So uh, that'll be the following Thursday. Not this. Yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, not this Thursday, funny. but next. Thursday. No, I mean. So, is there anything that we can we can do to plug? Uh, well, plug anything. Hoon School, etc. <laughs> I mean, we're just trying to build new and exciting things. Um, I mean, plug plug Mars, right? Plug plug Urban. Get get people on here doing things. Uh, build reasons for them to come. Uh, I mean, I think that it's it's apparent that it's the sort of thing that the more of the right kind of people get involved, the more value it generates for everyone who's involved in it. Right? It's definitely a force multiplier for value. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't ways to mess that up with the wrong things, the wrong dynamics coming into the community. But at least at this point, I think the kinds of people who are liable to actually go to the work to get on the network are the kinds of people that we want to need. So right. that's that's the valuable thing to do. Neil, thanks for coming on the podcast. All right. Fantastic. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more, you can find us on Twitter at Stack Podcast. That's at S-T-A-C-K underscore podcast. Remember to give us a six-star rating on your algorithm of choice. And as always, walk with your shoulders back and your head held high, big persuader.